Hello, and welcome back to Inspire the Podcast with myself, Nicola Wills. Our incredible guest today is a lady whose voice and wisdom is unfortunately very much needed in the world right now. Her best-selling book, Unbroken, is a personal memoir of a horrific ordeal no child should ever face. Being gang-raped at 13 and then raped three more times before the age of 18. After many years of shame, stigma and silence, in 2014, aged 49, she shared her story for the first time and realised that she was a victim of crime. Now she has found her voice and intends to use it. She is a well-renowned, amazing author with her book, Unbroken. She's now a public speaker, a podcaster and a two-times TEDx speaker. Please welcome Madeline Black. Thank you, Nicola. So lovely to join you. Thanks for having me on. Hello, Madeline. Thank you so much for being here. Now, we've heard that what you know happened to you age 13, and we'll go into that um, a little bit later in the podcast, but I would love to start with, you know, before all this happened, um, when you were, you know, just a child, what did your life look like? You know, where are you from? What was your relationship like with your parents? Just share with us what that little girl looked like. Yeah, I think I was a very shy, um, naive little girl, really, um, kind of person that hid behind their mum's legs if anybody said hello to them. I'm one of five. I'm in the middle. I have two amazing parents. My father passed away about 25 years ago, but he was a Holocaust survivor, but he used his laughter. That was his strength, and he really loved life. My mum was brilliant until she became bedridden. She had her her neck broken in an operation, so she was bedridden for a few years. She had weaknesses already, and they didn't take the care that they needed. So, yeah, after that, things were quite tough at home, I guess. It was a challenging time because we had um, people in looking after my mum, people in looking after us. My dad was juggling home and juggling five kids, so... Yeah, it wasn't always um, easy, which I guess is um, maybe kind of led to what happened that night. I was looking for an excitement or a way from what was taking place at home. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And what was it like? What were you like at school? I was just very well behaved, you know. I was too scared to be naughty oh. then. <laughs> just did what I was told and, you know, just get on with it and... Uh, yeah, I used to really, really enjoy school, enjoy seeing my friends. My mum is the kind of mum that she still does now, rescued every animal going. Oh. So our house, we had five kids, five <laughs> dogs, bunnies, gerbils, guinea pigs. She would rescue birds, you know, that we had everything. She later went on to have an animal sanctuary many years later. So we we're always surrounded by animals. Um, so wonderful. Yeah. And so then you're, you, know, you become a teenager, age 13. And I think yeah. like like all of us, it's it's a time where you do not know what's going on in, you yeah. know, is, is this friend my best friend? You just want to be in the cool game. What's happening to my body? You know, and I can yeah. imagine, you know, at that time, you very much like all of us girls, you were in that place. Can you just, you know, talk me through that, you know, year of your life that that happened? Yeah, you know, I was one of these girls who literally woke up overnight and just had 
full mess of boobs had just developed so quickly, this massive flood of hormones. And yeah, there was this girl at school who was really, really cool and everybody wanted to be her. But my mum, you know, we were very, wore our sensible Clark shoes and our long navy socks. And, you know, I guess I was a bit of a geek maybe, but um, yeah, it was. It's a, it's a difficult time for anyone, so especially to have a trauma at that time in your life because it's such a confusing time anyway with all the hormones that are flying around our heads. Yeah, so you're this basically this young, naive girl who all of a sudden wakes up looking like a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so what, take us back to that time, to that that day. Was it a normal, was it a weekend that that this happened? It was a Saturday. So okay. my my friend that was involved, she is, you're way younger than me, so you might not remember, there was a program called Charlie's Angels and she yes. had the best flicks in her hair. I was oh, so jealous of her flicks. Farrah flicks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And she wore the nicest shoes and she wore makeup. We weren't allowed to wear makeup. She was really cool and she just suggested that we had a night out and we did, I guess, what most people have done at some point in their teenage life we lied about where we were staying because her mum was away and she was meant to be at her grandma's and we just said we were both at her grandma's when we weren't her grandma thought she was at my house and uh we managed to buy a bottle of vodka it was the late 1970s and i guess it was an awful lot easier than a no way to look 18, but we did. And we took it to this little cafe along the Finchley Road in North London. And obviously it didn't take very long for me to drink it, to get very sick. And after throwing up everywhere, they kicked us out. Wow. And then, God, the Finchley Road. I know that Finchley Road so well. I live there. It, 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 and even just to you say saying that just makes me feel like that was was just a normal cafe on a yes. normal Saturday. Yeah. It could have been anyone. It could have been yep. any of us girls. And that's Absolutely. the scary part. And, you know, and it, that's the part that people get in contact with me saying, oh my gosh, I was out one night and I was legless. I was really drunk. I woke up in the in the pavement or I woke up in between two cars in the street. Anything could have happened to me as well. So yeah, it was just wrong time wrong place i don't think it was i don't think i don't know if they planned to rape me but i think it was just the wrong place the wrong time and so whilst you were sat in the cafe do you remember the the guys that were there yeah my friend uh her father was american and they were all boys from the american school down the road in st john's wood <sighs> yes and she then change she became an american accent and became quite flirtatious and i was just you know still quite shy um there was quite a few of them on the table and then as i'm being sick you know two of them took us back to her mum's flat the empty flat and that's really when the night went uh horribly wrong yeah and so how old do you think these boys would have been i mean not they even... weren't much older they may be at the top of schools so maybe like 17 18. But just they were sons think. of diplomats. Wow. Wow. Which, I mean, it doesn't make it any worse or any better, but you just think if you, you know, your parents are well-educated, surely you know better, you know, it, but it's... Yeah, but, you know, rape is not about sex. It's about abuse and power and a, a dehumanising and uh, that's really what it's about. So it's just all about abuse and power over me. And... So you left the the cafe, yeah. And these boys, what you thought helped you, 
you know, you... Yeah, I, I naively thought that they were going to put me into the bed and take me out the clothes I'd chucked up all over and let me sleep it off. But actually, very quickly on, I realised, no, that's not what they're there for. They were there for something else. And where was your friend at this time? They put us into different bedrooms and um, after it all happened, she appeared not to have been touched in any way and... Uh, people, readers, have a lot of theories, but I don't know what's true or not because many years later, when I was able to tell my parents about three years afterwards, she denied it had happened how it had happened. She said, no, they were just nice boys and brought us home, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, and I can't drive myself crazy wondering, did she set it up like some people suggest or did anything happen to her or... I don't know. Um, I just think... I blocked out of my mind, she blocked out of her mind and, and we were just scared we'd get into trouble because, you know, we'd met boys, we'd lied, we went to an empty flat, we bought alcohol. So I'll never know. Of course, know. of course. And you were in this room and at this, can you remember it or, you know, because when you I mean, I have two drinks and my memory goes, can you, is it a feeling that you remember or... Is it something that happened that is just a memory within your body? Well, it's, a, it's very weird memories, isn't it? Because now I remember, but at the time it, it was gone. I knew something had happened. I had many injuries on my body, um, but at the time it was very fuzzy. It was really hazy. I wasn't really, I wasn't really aware of how I got these memories. And then gradually, I mean, this is a long time ago now. I would get flashbacks of images or things that they did to me or things that they said. It was more their attitudes, their laughing at me. It wasn't even the most painful things that were the most degrading things, um, things that you wouldn't imagine would, would actually affect you more, really affected me more. And that's what it was. It was the laughter and the just total disregard for a human being is really what impacted me because trauma is never really about what happens to us. It's what we do with it. It's it's like the residue that's left behind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I've, I've heard you say on one of your TED Talks that you felt it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Oh, yeah, verdant. <laughs> you know, that you yeah. were like sat on the wardrobe, is that right? Like yes. looking down at yourself yeah. I mean just yeah. talk me through how that must have did that yeah, happen straight away or was that something that you can look back on and see it yeah that's as the violence escalated as it as it really escalated they made about three serious attempts to end my life Honestly, oh. didn't work <laughs> thank goodness and I think if I had stayed in my body I don't think I would be here you kind of have to get out of the way when there's extreme trauma you know you hear of mum's been able to lift a car if their toddler's been caught underneath it or so many people have said to me they they left their body at the scene of the crime you know which was taking place to them and it was very surreal and because it was so surreal that's what made me think have I dreamt all of this because I wasn't really in when so much of it was happening I had to get out to protect myself and it wasn't an intentional thing it's just the trauma took over and my my mind my body just left the scene but it, it left me very confused for many years. I thought it feels so dreamlike and I couldn't quite grasp it all. And I think at one hand it really saved me, but on the other hand it, it confused me for many, many years. Yeah, of course. And also because you're 13. You know, yes. you don't know. You don't know 
about those kind of things anyway. So for those yep. things to happen to you, it's not like you go, oh, that was this and that's yes. he's doing this yes. now because you Absolutely. don't really even know that they exist. You yes. know, you're not old enough to have had the life experiences or watched movies or heard of other stories to know that these horrific people and humans can do these things. So it's Absolutely. I, I didn't have the words. I couldn't verbalise it. And also at the very end, one of them threatened me and said, if I did speak about it, they would find me and they would kill me. And I, you know, I believed him of quite course. seriously. And um, yeah, it's, it's very hard to find the words to, to really verbalize because I denied it, I minimized it. And my instinct was to push it down, to push it far away from my consciousness. It wasn't even a thought, it's just really what took over just to push it away as much yeah. as I could. So, you eventually, they didn't kill you, thank goodness, no. you, you would have probably fallen asleep and, then you, and, and you woke up and it's the next day. Yeah. Uh, have they left by then? Did they leave? They, they had left. They put me back in the bed and then they okay. left. And, and I woke up and my friend was now in the bed next to me and she was still clothed and untouched and I was naked and had a lot of injuries on my body. And what then happened from there, from that yeah. point forward, you know? Yeah, we both decided really not to speak about it because already, even though there was no social media then late 1970s, but the victim blaming messages were coming into me fast. I thought I'd lied to my mum and dad, I'd gone and bought alcohol, I met boys, I'd put makeup on, all the things that they said don't do. Um, and I just thought, well, I kind of brought this on myself really, hadn't I? This was my fault. And so wow. that was the message I was giving myself, fed by society. And it's five million times worse now, but that's uh, already at that age, I was buying into those myths that are out there. So we didn't speak about Pure. it. Sorry, how did you cover up your injuries? Just, it's amazing what you can do. You just put your clothes back on and go back home. My mum was still bedridden at this point. Okay. So I didn't need to go into her room too much. And over time, the physical wounds heal, but it's more what it really does to your head, what it does to your mind is the really where the damage was done. Yeah, of course. And so let explain then the, the change in you. So then as a teenager, what what did your teenage years then look like if you then, you, you told no one in that whole time, yeah. it was just you and your friend. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't even really know or believe you either. Yeah. What did your life look like in your teenage years? Um, depression eating disorder, drugs, alcohol, anxieties, fears, phobias, uh, attempted suicide, children's psychiatric ward when I was on my 14th birthday, locked in psychiatric ward, Great Ormond Street. Yeah, oh, it was a pretty, wow. pretty dark uh, teenage years. And what did, were your parents, were they like saying, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, how can you yeah. change like this? They were. My mum reminds me that she took me to see a psychiatrist on Harley Street, but I I was kind of mute. I wasn't speaking at all. And she said the, the psychiatrist told her that, well, if she won't speak to me, I can't help her, but I can help you. So she went along, but she said she always knew something was wrong, but they could never figure it out. And actually, when I wrote my book, I decided to ask for my notes. Somebody suggested I could get my notes from the time in hospital because I, I really wanted to see did they have any idea? And nothing, nothing in my notes suggests they knew that I'd experienced a trauma. They just put me down as a troubled adolescent with anorexic and a 
a mother at home that was struggling with her health and well-being. And I just think, you know, everybody was focused on my behavior. Why was she behaving like that? Rather than asking, well, what happened to you? What happened? No one really ever asked me the right questions in there. Never. Oh, God, I literally, my heart, I just feel just like so sad for that. It's just so, and also it's it's of a time, you know. I think if that happened right now, I would like to think that we have come so far in soul searching and trauma, you know, that we, that it wouldn't get missed. You know, a, a naughty boy or a naughty girl or someone that's doing things that aren't typical of their behavior. It's not just because all of a sudden they've become naughty. Absolutely. Something has happened for this to be that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't speak, I couldn't eat. I hated myself. I had, you know, no self-worth, no self-belief, no self-confidence. And that was just put down to depressed anorexic. Just depressed, t- troubled teens. Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness. So you then, Turned 18. Then talk through the, what, what then happened then. Uh, well, when just before I was 17, my mum discovered I was smoking a lot of dope with my friends and she decided to call all of my friends' parents to let them know. So clearly I wasn't too popular at school and I went uh, pretend to go to school. I'd go to the park most days and just sit and smoke and then come back at the end of the day. And they just said, you know, maybe I should go away for some time, get away, get away from the bad crowds that I was involved with. And just before 17, I went to the Middle East. I went to Israel for a year. And that's nearly 40 years ago now. And that's where I met um, Stephen, my husband, a Glaswegian, all that way and met a Glaswegian. And that really, you know, you shouldn't really look for something outside of you to cure you. But it, he, I do believe he was an angel sent to save me. He did... Um, yeah, he's had a massive impact on my life. Yeah, absolutely. What an angel. And yes. were you able to tell him what had happened to you? Not straight away, but after about five years, he asked me to marry him and I just was terrified the idea of giving birth. You know, I thought somehow my fears were really around my safety, being out of control and being around men. And I just thought, I can't give birth. So the easiest way was just to avoid it. So I thought, right, I'll never become a mum. That's uh, problem solved. That was the way I approached things and just avoid them, which was not a very sensible approach. And when he asked me to marry him, I thought I'd better just remind him that, you know, he's not going to have children with me. And he was okay. He was really okay about that. And we'd been married a couple of years. We used to take all of our holiday every year because I should really live in Spain or Ibiza. <laughs> I shouldn't be living in Glasgow. Um, I'm meant to live in the sunshine, definitely. And uh, we would just take all of our annual leave for about a month every winter. I mean, in Thailand, and I can just see the exact moment that I flipped that decision round. He was walking along the beach. We'd been traveling for three, four weeks on this gorgeous island, Koh Phi Phi. And he just wanders out loud, you know, how about starting a family? And oh. I was just ready to say, oh, come on, you know why I can't do that. I've explained it to you, but something different came into my head. And I thought, you know, if I don't become a mum, they've won. I'm, I'm giving all of my power and control over to them and they won't even know about it. So I thought there and then I've got to come up with a plan, which I call my best revenge because they are the best things I've ever done in my life. And not only was I going to become a mum, but I was determined to live my best life, to 
clean up my trauma to drain my swamp. I don't know if it's ever completely drained, but we're getting there. And I'm just going to live my life as best as I possibly could. And then I went into therapy when I came home. And two years later, my eldest daughter, nearly 30 years ago, was born. Anna and I went on to have two more girls, uh, Mimi and Layla. Girls as well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And a Jewish mama. So, yeah, as well as my trauma and a Jewish mama. So, yeah, it was a, a, a challenge for me to be a mum of three girls, it was. Yeah, of course, especially having that in the back of your mind, like the fear that why it could be them. And, and I think that would probably, for me, being a mum, I would rather have that all have happened to me ten times rather than it happened no, no, to them no, once. No. But actually becoming a mum, I saw my fears. Um, I have an example which was showed me how crazy I was with my fears. When Anna was going to high school, as they say in Scotland, secondary school, she wanted to take the public bus and I refused to let her. I said, no, I'm going to drive you to school every day because that's what I've always done. And she kind of wore me down. And so I gave her her bus money. I gave her a rape alarm. I told her not to listen with her earbuds in, sit nearest the driver, etc. And then for about a week, I used to drive my car behind that bus to go to school to see that she got there. And then I suddenly woke up to what I was doing. I thought, you're crazy. You, this is really madness. What am I doing? What has been the point of bringing these three girls into this world if I, I could corrupt their minds? You know, I could really poison them and transfer all of my my paranoid thoughts and my fears and my anxieties onto them. So I had to really learn to loosen my grip and let them be, you know, the strong, spontaneous, independent women that I want them to be, which is kind of, be careful what you wish for because they all are. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I had to be very careful because I saw that I could corrupt their minds so easily and I didn't want to do that. Yeah, and just squash their independence because yeah. of your fear yeah. of course so i had to let them live and and they have lived and i've always been very open i said i don't care what you've been doing if you've been drinking doing drugs you're lost to phone us and we will always come and get you we'll never judge you we'll just always be there so they know that gives me goosebumps but yeah oh. i i completely agree and so at this time did did, did people know what had happened to you or were you just doing these things and kind of doing them not anyone really knowing what you're doing. Yes, some people knew, okay. but not many. Okay. But then I, when I had this thing with my fear, I started to see my fears aren't real. You know, it's wow. all based on my imagination. Yeah. You know, and think I'm sure you all know the acronyms: uh, false evidence appearing real, or face everything and rise. And I, I realised I've been doing the first one for years, years because yes. fear. It was like my best pal. You know, we would just walk side by side for years. Everything scared me. I mean, I did have to face a lot of fears when I became a mum, being around mm -hmm. men and being out of control. I've had two home births in this house, though. That's how much I controlled the situation. But um, I just saw everything's based on already what's happened, which is the worst case scenario, or it's based on what, what could happen. So I had to find a way to stay in this moment, to stay as centred and grounded and present as possible and that's really been my journey to um, allow the triggers to come up but to sit with them and not let them rock me anymore yeah yeah amazing so whilst you're also becoming a mum 
You were working, weren't you? Just tell us a little yeah. bit about that. I've worked, before I trained as a psychotherapist, I worked at Women's Aid and I worked at Rape Crisis. I was a volunteer there for years as well. And then I, through my work at Women's Aid, I wanted to become a better support worker. And so I trained as a counsellor, went on to do psychotherapy and just fell in love with that. So I left yeah. that world and worked with both men and women. And that also caused issues because... I'd get very scared in the sessions when I first worked with men. And again, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be a rubbish therapist if I can't work with like 50% of my clients. So again, I did, I guess it's like exposure therapy without me knowing. I said, I only want to work with men. I asked the receptionist to not give me any more female clients, no more mixed couples. And I, I did for a long time, I worked with just men only. And that really, you know, shifted my fears around men. I saw what belonged to me wasn't there fear at all in the room and I could park it to one side in order to do I guess a therapeutic process with them. Wow how powerful. Then in 2014 you shared your story publicly. I did. Didn't you for the first time. How did that come about? Yeah so it through the powers of social media there's uh, an organization called the Forgiveness Project and their founder, amazing woman called Marina Cantacuzuno, she knew a little bit about my story because I'd started to share stuff. I'd been one of these women in papers that, um, newspapers that had her, just the silhouette. It's always by a window for some reason. I don't know why. It's just, you know, I was shaded out. I d- just said maybe Madeleine. I didn't have all, all the details. And she said she'd like to share my story on her website because she collects stories of forgiveness because I... And later on chose to forgive these two men. Um, and she said, you don't need to put your face. You don't need to put your name. You can be totally anonymous. But, you know, I was just tired of being ashamed. Why should I be ashamed for a crime that was committed against my body, you know? Um, so I just thought, no, I'm going to I'm gonna put my face and my name and my, my photo. And I did. And I've, I've never looked back. Never. It was just amazing what took place. That is just so powerful. And how was there a moment where, you know, you was it like a practice or something you did to say, I forgive you? How did how on earth no. did you get to that point? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I used to like, call myself an accidental forgiver. I never really I, okay. honestly, I was never gonna forgive them. I just okay. thought they were animals and yeah. um I just really I fantasized and plotted all these crazy ideas. I wanted somebody to kidnap them, take them to a flat, tie them up, beat them up, you know, rape and torture them for five hours, whatever, just like they'd done to me, so they'd understand. But it was when Anna turned 13, a lot of my memories, all of the memories returned. And I went back for therapy again, and it took about three years. They would come back to me in my dream states. I would, nightmares would wake me up and I'd get new information and new information. I tried to avoid going to sleep, which is not a great idea if you work in and look after three children. Not my best (laughs) plan ever. But about near to the end, my therapist, Ron, said to me, um, maybe they weren't born rapists. And at first I just thought, what a ridiculous statement to make. How could he say something so stupid? And I got really, really angry with him. But then... It also, I guess, um, sent me on a journey of inquiry. I I really wanted to understand how could they dehumanize me and degrade me so much. How can they know to be so violent? But then I realized 
when they're dehumanizing me, they're dehumanizing themselves. They're not connected into their goodness, their source that we that we all come into all this born world into, with. Yeah. And somehow, don't ask me how, this, this is just what happened. I felt compassion in my heart because I thought, you know, I've really done a good job of living my life as best as I can and refusing to be identified by what had happened. But the path of someone that hurts somebody else, I don't think that's easier. And I thought that's that's a tough path for them to walk. Whether they're conscious about it or not, it's going to leak out of them and somehow. And then I just thought in order for me to make peace, I could choose to forgive them. And wow. I that took me by surprise. It really did. Yeah. Because I was still chained to them. I was still chained to the past. Being stuck in that trauma held me back. But this also came, I have to be very clear to anyone that's listening, after years and years of talking therapies, a lot of body therapies, alternative therapies, things that people might think that's a bit wacky, but all to shift the memories that were held in my head, but also held in my body because our, our bodies and our mind are so linked and we hold so much trauma in our bodies. So I've always, my journey has been about even though I didn't want them, getting my memories back and landing back in my body. Because when I left that night, it took me a long, long time to get back into my body, if that makes sense. I felt like I was renting an empty house for years, an unfurnished property. I was just a tenant in my body. And it's taken me a long time to land back in using many different ways. So I realized that forgiveness was about me. You know, I didn't need them to say they were sorry. It was really an act of self-love, of self-compassion, and it set me free. It's so much more peaceful, not hating and just letting it go, you know, because it's just a story now. I'm nearly 58. It's, it doesn't own me in any way. It is just a story, but it hugely impacted on my life. And yet I'm not the events in my life. So it's this paradox that goes around in my head a lot. Yeah. And it's also, then you've given forgiveness. It makes you powerful to be able to share your story with people who are not yet in that place. Yeah. For them to go, okay, there is light at the end of this tunnel. Absolutely. This yeah, feeling absolutely. of hate and anger that surely would just coats everything in their life. Yeah, you know, but I have to, to say I'm not a forgiveness preacher. I don't yeah. want people to think that the only way to heal no, is by I agree. forgiveness. And I will never, ever, ever forgive the act of rape because it did totally violate my mind and my body and my psyche. There's many paths to healing and this is just the way that I chose, but it, it made perfect sense because I was just holding on and holding on to the hate and it was only harming me. They didn't have any idea. So, yeah, but I don't want to be a forgiveness preacher, but it, it made sense for me. Yeah. And it's that thing of hurt people, hurt people. You know, Absolutely. I've had, I have lots of people on here, amazing guests, have so, so much success. And they're just like, I was severely bullied, you know, yes. and, and they, they have to let go of that. And they go, you know what, that person was, I actually felt sorry for them in the end. Yeah. Um, just quickly, did you ever have any... Um, was there any charges pressed or anything against the victims? Or no, I never, I never took it to the police. I know that they would have lived in London for a couple of years and they would have gone back to America once okay. the, the family would have left. And it was only when I was writing my book that I even 
remembered the three other times because I had no idea about consent. You know, I was just too scared really to say no. I became very promiscuous, which is also one of the many side effects a woman or a man can have after being raped or sexually assaulted. And I just thought, actually, those times I very clearly said no and they just carried on. And it was like till I was 50, 51 writing my book when that was rape as well. You know, and and that's been the part that people have messaged me saying, not the main one, but the other events, not that rape is comparable because it's all a violation. It's not one is worse than the other. Um, They said, yeah, that actually happened to them and they never called it rape either. Yeah, yeah. You just, I just think, especially when, you know, you are a teenager and you're, for me, it led right up to the age of 30. You know, I've never experienced rape, but what I definitely have experienced is a feeling of, I just have to do this, even if I don't really want to, because I've got myself to this point, they're going to be angry if I don't. And that's no consent really, is it? That's no consent either. But, you know, it was like, well, you know, just let them on Nicola. And gosh, having my girls now, you know, and, and, and my mum didn't really I think as well, you know, I'm 40 now. That we didn't talk about sex. It wasn't a thing. I didn't know anything about my body, their body. It was just, you know, all my friends doing it. And so we just learned about it on the job. As, as awful as that sounds, there was no discussion. And yes. something that, you know, that I definitely know that with my children it is going to be an open book from uh, as soon as you know, like probably like nine, 10 is going to be a conversation so that, that I know and understand. How did you, you know, as a mother, you know, gr- raising teenage girls, what was the conversation like with, to them from what you have experienced? How did you deal with it? open compared to most mums. <laughs> they were always very aware of what had happened to me. I used, I guess, kind of age appropriate language. So when they were little, they knew that two boys hurt me very badly. And that's how I used to word it. And as they got older and, you know, that became more into their consciousness, their awareness, they, they knew exactly what rape was. Right. And I was always made them very aware that um, you always have a choice. It has to be a very enthusiastic yes on both parts. And you can get as far as you want and you can still say no. Say that's no, okay yeah. as well. You're not teasing them in any way. Um, but I think we need to teach consent and respect at school and not just about sexual relationships, you know, as a little girl, go and kiss your granddad, go and give your granny a hug, go and sit on this one's knee, you know, forced to do things. And rather than just to be an independent person, say, I don't want to do that, you know? So there's so many areas we need to teach about respect and healthy relationships. Yes. Yeah, and, and not, it is that feeling of like, especially as little girls, to, to, do, to be kind and be nice and be cute. Yes. It's our social mind, isn't it? We don't want to be rude, but we should be. If, if it doesn't feel right, trust your gut, just say no, run. <laughs> exactly, and my little girl at five, I, she has an instinct. She knows, she knows if that person isn't, you know, comp- she doesn't feel comfortable, she doesn't want to be with him, be around, you know, him or her. And I can sense it instantly and I pick up on it and I'm like, it's okay, Minnie, come here, stay with me. You're not, you don't need to do anything. Um, and so I just, yeah, I'm very, very passionate about, about that. You know, I, a lot of my background, I worked in the nightlife industry and I well, it wasn't in strip clubs or anything like that, but at night, unfortunately, you would see the worst of people. And 
it, it was horrific, you know, growing up in Dorset in this little village of sleepy village, I saw nothing. And I moved to London when I was 18. And then within the first like five years of living there, I was open to the different eye opener. Yeah, the, the world really around me. And I did feel like on the back foot and naive because I wasn't educated. And, you know, and I, because I was a podium dancer, I used to dance as well in podiums. And I would have boyfriends um, say to me, oh, you shouldn't go out in that nickel, you're asking for it. Um, you know, like, oh, it's just a bit, it's like, just a bit too sexy, you know, you're going to get just all of these conversations around, you know, I had a sexy body and therefore I should cover up if I don't want any attention because otherwise you're going to, Bad things are going to happen. And so that too. really is victim blaming. It's putting all the blame onto what the woman was wearing. I know now it wasn't anything to do with what I drank, what I wore, the lies I told. Hundred percent of all rapes are caused by rapists. Nothing else. And and that's just a way of avoiding responsibility, of blaming the victim, and silencing women and men from coming forward and reporting it, um, or speaking out about it even, because I don't know if reporting it is always so helpful because of the, the so-called justice system lets down so many victims in our country. Um, but yeah, this, it still goes on. Well, you know, what did you expect? You went up to the his hotel room. Well, no, you didn't ask to be raped. That's not what you expected. There was a in Ireland, I love the Irish people. They're very fiery, a bit like the Scots. And there was a, a woman who was on a, a trial. It was her rape trial. She was a witness in her trial. And the judge said to her, well, you were wearing lacy thongs. What did you expect? And so if he's got down to your thongs, he's obviously not, she hasn't consented to that. But all of the demonstrations in the street were women that had bought lacy thongs and were just waving them in the air. This is not an invitation to rape me. My underwear does not cause rape. Rapist cause rape, and it, it really angers me because you should be able to walk down the street naked and not be touched. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you write your book, you write your book age 51, you've become an author. How did that come about? Was that something that you were like, I need to write this or were you asked uh, to do that? No, I, I mean, I, would, I thought I would never speak about my story. I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of, I guess, alternative therapies and I've have a teacher of life, I guess you would call him a shaman for many years, maybe about 20 years, a man named Imaho. And he suggested I write my story down. And I'm like, not a chance. There's no way I'm writing it for you or for anyone. But I thought maybe I could. And I stopped and started over four years and eventually 12 pages came out of me. And he said, if you're going to write it, put down all the details and everything that happened, you know, don't exclude anything and it, my fingers were just that automatic and it just flowed out of me and then he asked me if he could speak about me at one of his workshops I went hang on that's a very different thing you said you just wanted me to write it for you and then you know I thought well I really trust this man he has helped me a lot and I agreed and um, it was in I think Teufen, one of the workshops in Switzerland where he spoke about me. And as he was speaking, I wasn't present. I was in Glasgow. I was aware of my words kind of flying around. And I thought, I think he's let them read what I'd written. And I was right. And I phoned and said, how did it go? He said, oh, it was great, really good. And I was mortified. I just thought I can never, can't ever go back to a workshop. How could he do this to me? But then I thought, you know, 
it, it was a shame, really. It was a shame that was speaking to me, thinking that people would look at me differently when they, as if somehow what happened was a reflection of me. And so I went back to Ireland, was the next workshop for me in Cork. And I didn't know that he told people not to speak to me, just ignore her and let her be. And the, the workshops run for about four days. And I walked in and it was like I had walked in naked. I felt so stripped. And everybody just kind of looked down at their feet and nobody even made eye contact. Nobody spoke to me. It was very strange. But, you know, people are people. And after a few days, they started to say, you know, I held on to this argument with a businessman and if you could forgive those two men I can forgive this man or I had a similar situation but I've never told anyone and then I started to see that power of sharing our stories and then through the forgiveness project after I had shared my story I went to an event in Glasgow they're normally always in London it was a, an amazing woman called Marianne Partington who wrote a beautiful book called If I Sit Very Still and her sister Lucy Partington had been murdered by Rose and Fred West. And when I heard her speak uh, at this event, it was just at school down the road, she just emanated this peace. And she spoke about her journey into prisons, how she shares her story with the Forgiveness Project. She'd been doing this for like 10 years or so. And she, um, I bought her book that night and inside she wrote, now you must speak. And just as soon as I read it, I thought, I'm going to write my story down. And just like when I'd written the words for Imaho, it literally just, I, I always say I vomited my book. It was about eight weeks later, all the words just appeared. I would kind of couldn't sleep at night and I would just see all the chapter headings and all the words and sit down here at my Mac. And then in eight weeks it was done. And I very luckily got a publisher within a few months and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. just so powerful. And it's, it's like, it is that passing that per Lucy went first and she wrote two words. Now you, well, you now you shall speak that you read that spoke to you, that you just read your message. How, just how amazing. Did you write those words in your book? The next I, I, one of the very last chapters is called Meeting Marion. So I speak about how I met her and that was the the trigger, the good trigger of me just opening up. And I think when we're ready, the words do come. When we allow that space and we open up, whether that's verbally or creatively or, you know, writing, whatever, if we can just allow the space to be, it's amazing what can come up. Yeah. And since writing your book, so much has opened up for you. So you stopped working as a psychotherapist. I did, yes. Didn't you? Um, just before lockdown, which maybe wasn't the most sensible <laughs> decision at the time, but I had just been in Namibia. I was the closing keynote at a big conference wow. and I just thought I can't juggle everything. You know, I, I don't want to do both jobs kind of part-time and I wanted to focus on speaking because I thought in my sessions I'm on a one-to-one, -one, but if I'm on a stage I can do one-to-many and I wanted want people to see that there's definitely life after trauma. You can have an amazing life. You can really live your life well and you can heal. And if anything, you can have um, post-traumatic growth. You know, you can grow through what you go through without a doubt. Yeah. And so that led on to TEDx, two TEDx's. How did yeah. you feel about doing that? I mean, that is a mass. That's huge. Yeah. 
Yeah, the first one um, I applied, I didn't get in the first time. So I got in on the second time. And I believe Glasgow is one of the hardest ones to get into. And it was a big audience. I'd never spoken to, I think it was two and a half thousand people before. And my family were present in the audience. And I have to say, honestly, it was one of the most terrifying but liberating moments of my life. Because I once I stood on that red dot, I just thought, well, this is me. And there's no hiding anymore. But also I thought... It's not about me anymore. It's not about me speaking. It's now about who's listening. And that's that really grounded me. And the second one, actually, just here in this little office with everything pushed out the way, was a virtual one. And I was asked to do that one. People had seen the first one and they invited wow, me to do another one. I was just recently invited to do another one and I thought, I don't know what I would say now. <laughs> so I'm still deciding if I do number three or not. But, yeah, it is, it's been really good because, again, I just really want to speak out to end that silence for other people to yeah. allow them to find their voice because I do think, you know, what we don't speak about gets heavy. It weighs us down. It really does. It's heavy to carry all that these dark chapters around inside of us that we never speak about. So if we can speak what's happened, doesn't have to be about rape, any trauma, it just releases something and shifts something. And then more of us can turn up the you you were before it even all happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still there. It's, yes. it's, and that's it. It's remembering because I'm sure in you forget and yeah. it, it gets buried and buried and buried until Absolutely. you just, it's like, who even am I? What kind of do I like? What do I even think? What is my opinion? And, you know, we're not, like you said, we're all born to be here, to show up, to shine our light, to be amazing. You know, even those the horrible people that did what they did to you, they could heal their trauma. Potentially they could, you know, be, become lights to other people. Yeah. And so where are you now? What is your, what is your mission? What is your purpose right now? Share with us. Yeah. Well, I feel my purpose really is to share my story and I've, I'm not really a very good business person. I just allow the work to come to me, obviously, with lockdown. Things change dramatically. Everything was virtual, but more and more events are coming up. So I speak in person quite a lot. But I, whatever happens, I'll always speak out. I'll always be an activist now because I was silent for years and I refuse to be silent anymore. I can't be quiet about all the injustices that I see and the injustice system. So I would always speak up. I'm a patron for a few organizations and I support them as well. But yeah, I think my purpose, this is my purpose now just to speak, to give permission to other people to find their voice as well. Yeah. Like you've lit your candle, which allows others to light theirs. Absolutely. And I just love that, you know, you were 51 when this happened, yes. you know, so many yeah, people absolutely. think, oh, you know, if you haven't found your purpose by the age of 30, then you're, then you're over it. You're, you know, you're just no. a mom or then you're just a grandma Absolutely. and then that's it. Yeah. And I don't even have an English uh, O-level or anything. So if I can write a book, anyone could do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's just so powerful that a mom of three has been able to go through these things, discover, like it's a journey of self-discovery and, you know, really open yourself up and be so vulnerable with three girls looking at you. And I bet they are so proud of you. you know, like, look at their mum, look at my mum go, you know, look how what an absolute boss babe she is now <laughs> to share, sharing those things, you know, with us. 
A question I always like, like to ask, you know, every guest is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Sure. If you could go back now yeah. and look, you know, to look at her, what would you say to her? Well, I don't really like to have any regrets. You know, I used to think, oh, if I had only stopped denying it when I was in therapy, I could have saved a lot of money, saved all those years. But you do the journey that you do, so I can't have regrets. But what I would do, I would go back and tell her it wasn't her fault. Yeah. Because for years she held on to guilt and fear and shame, inappropriate shame. It was never my shame. And just the feeling of being guilty that it was my fault, um, I would try to eradicate that. Yeah. And what advice would you give to people, you know, let's say they feel trauma, they haven't spoken yep. out to anybody yet. Where do they go? What do they do right now? Yeah, I would say it's never too late to find your voice. It's never too late to find someone to listen. Be careful who you, you find, you know, trust the person that you tell your story to. Um, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been interviewed by some wonderful people. One of them was Sir Trevor McDonald for BBC Radio 4, which is no offence to you, it was pretty fabulous. And after the show, my friend told me that her aunt had been listening. She was 81. And to cut a very long story short, she told her niece that she also had been raped as a young girl and she hadn't told anyone and she ended 64 years of her silence. So courage really is contagious. I got my courage from somebody else and I hope that I can pay that forward. But I just want people to know that there's always hope, you know, pain does end eventually, hold on, pain ends. Um, but find someone to speak to and if you can't find someone, stop denying your story, stop minimizing it, stop making it out it was less than it was. Tell yourself your story, write your story down. But yeah, there's, it's never too late to go out and get help or to find your voice. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Just words of wisdom, honesty, vulnerability. I feel like I've taken so much away and I know that our audience who tune in to listen to inspiring stories will be like, there is nothing that I can't speak about. There is nothing that I can't share. Speak, talk, open is the way forward. It is the way to calmness, happiness, and just, it's okay. Yeah, I, I really do believe that it's it's not about what happens to us, it is important, but it's what we do with what happened to us. That's what really matters. And we can all choose how we respond. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I'm in the show notes, if anybody does want to get hold of you, then we will have all of the information on how people can get in contact with you, how people can get hold of your book. Um, I know they don't do your podcast anymore, but that you, they can contact you and reach out to you on Instagram. Um, it's been a pleasure and I'm sure we'll be speaking again very soon. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Of I really course. loved it. Thank you so much. <laughs>